0: If you want to get a head start in the scriptures, we're going to be looking uh, first at 1 Corinthians 2, so you might want to turn there if you want to get a head start. There's some notes in the back and there's some up here in the front if you need a, an outline to follow along. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the Bible, and we've spent the last couple of months mostly talking about the doctrine of the Bible, and I'm going to put these words up. I've put them up every week so far. Tonight, I'm going to reference these just as a group collectively in just a few minutes, so just file them away. We've talked about the inspiration of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, uh, the perspicuity or the clarity of the Bible, its authority, necessity, sufficiency, power, unity, and beauty, all these things that we believe about the Bible. And then we've sort of made a pivot, and we're trying to think through how do we interpret the Bible. That's the task of hermeneutics. And the topics that we're covering uh, in this part of the series are, we've talked about the canon and sort of a basic introduction last week. Tonight we're talking about the interpreter, that's us, we're the interpreters of the Bible. And then in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about some basic rules, narrative and epistle, prophecy and apocalypse, idiom, metaphor, Hyperbole, and then one week on parables. And Lucas is going to leave that up just for a minute. I told you last week that when you're interpreting the Bible, we're dealing with written communication, right? The Bible was written down, it's printed now. We're talking about texts. And we talked about in written communication, there are three key pieces that sort of swirl around there's the author, and then there's the text. And then there's the reader. And our aim, as we talked about it last week, is to get down, to drill down in the text to authorial intent. What did the author intend to communicate in this particular passage? And the silly illustration that I gave you last week, but is really pretty helpful, is a grocery store list. Okay, last night, my wife said we're out of eggs. I need you to go to the grocery store and get eggs. So I went to get eggs. I went for one thing. But while I was going, my oldest daughter, who knew I had left and was going to the grocery store, said, "Dad," she texted me. She's sending me a list. I need chocolate chip muffins and I need a blue Gatorade." Okay? So that's written communication. I know it comes digitally in a text, but that's written communication. it comes through. I've got written communication. She's the author. Now the text is in my hand, and I am the interpreter. And I told you, the only way that communication is meaningful or possible is if you, the interpreter, read the text for authorial intent. It would have been no good, a complete communication breakdown, if I had gone home and said, well, I got you blueberry muffins and an orange Gatorade. That's how I interpreted what you wanted. That's not what I said. You don't get to make that interpretation. You read the text, you determine authorial intent. And that's what we're talking about when we think about hermeneutics. We have this text that's been written. We don't have direct access to the authors because of time. Thousands of years have passed. We can't just say, hey, Paul, what did you mean here? And so what we're left to do is to study the text and think about the text and try to get back to what did Paul mean to say in this passage. And depending on the genre of scripture that you're looking at, and we'll look at several in the weeks ahead, there's different rules for how you go about that process. Now, tonight, what we're specifically thinking about is our role as the interpreter. And we're going to think about this on kind of two levels on one level, there's some things that we have to take responsibility for. And on another level, there's some things that we are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit of God for. Right? There's some things that you might say we need to pull up our spiritual interpreter bootstraps on. And there's some other things that we are not capable of taking care of on our own. We're dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so that's sort of our aim This evening, A lot of you have heard of the Christian publishing company Zondervan. They publish lots and lots and lots of Christian books. They're one of the largest Christian publishers. And they have a a series of books called uh, Counterpoints. Counterpoints. And there's all sorts of them. I know you can't see all the titles or read all the titles, but there's all these books in this series. 32-volume set. I'm sure they'll add to it. You buy the whole set, it'll be outdated, and you'll have to add... Add to your library. And what they do in the Counterpoint series is they pick a biblical topic or a doctrine. And then they go find four people who hopefully aren't heretics who disagree about that topic. And they say, you write a chapter, you write a chapter, you write a chapter, you write a chapter. And then you all respond to each other's chapters. And so some of the topics include, do Christians, Muslims, and Jews worship the same God? What is the extent of the atonement? How do we make sense of creation, evolution, and intelligent design? What is the mission of the church? What do we believe about homosexuality? What do we believe about hell? What do we believe about the Trinity? What do we believe about the inerrancy of the Bible? What do we believe about evangelism, about providence, about the rapture, about baptism, about the Lord's Supper? On and on and on, and you've got all these people who come up with different interpretations of what the Bible says, and then in these books, they just sort of argue it out. Now, here's why I mentioned this series. When you think about interpreting the Bible, and we want to get down to, I told you last week, authorial intent, we want to get to what does the text mean? Not how do you feel about it, but what did it mean, and what does it mean today, and you look at a series of books like this and you say, look, that's a whole lot of really smart Bible scholars, 32 times about four a book, that's uh, 120 Bible scholars, and they don't agree about anything. They all just argue and fight about what baptism is or what it's not or uh, what is the mission of the church or what it's not, and they can't agree on what the Bible actually says, these people aren't arguing out of the Quran. They're not arguing out of the uh, the Hindu scriptures. They're arguing out of the Bible, and they all come away with different opinions. When you read that, all the debate, all the disagreement, it can be really discouraging to think: How do we get to what it actually means? Are we just going to be stuck in this endless cycle of fighting and arguing? and we just can't agree on what the Bible actually means. That's what we're trying to deal with on Wednesday nights right now, thinking about how we interpret the Bible. And here's part of the answer that we're going to discover tonight. When you read a series of books like this or an individual book like this, not everyone is actually playing by the same rules. You can think about interpreting the Bible. I don't mean to, to trivialize interpreting the Bible, but you can almost think of interpreting the Bible like a game, an athletic contest. And when we talked about the canon, we said, this is the field that we play on. We don't go outside of these boundaries. This is where the game is played. But we also have to agree on what are the rules for interpreting the Bible. And the reality is not everybody in these books, not everyone that, pastors at church, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is playing by the same set of rules. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, We're going to think first about the qualifications of an interpreter. You think about this as sort of a job description for you as you approach the Bible as an interpreter. What are the qualifications? Number one, a qualified interpreter is a person of faith, a qualified interpreter of the Bible is a person of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says the natural person, and as he's laying out this contrast in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he's talking about the natural person and the spiritual person. The Christian person, the follower of Jesus, and the non Christian person, a saved person and a not saved person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It says two things, closely related but different. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. And the natural person is not able to accept and understand the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned. Hebrews 11 is a sort of a sister passage to this. If you flip over to Hebrews 11 and you look at verse 6, the author of Hebrews says in this uh, early part of the, the hall of faith, he says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What the New Testament is telling you is that as you approach the Bible, you have to approach, if you want to interpret it correctly, you have to approach as a person of faith. Sometimes scholars refer to this as the hermeneutical circle. Sometimes they say hermeneutical spiral. But here's the basic idea of the hermeneutical circle. If the Bible is God's revelation, let's read the quote and then we'll go to that. If the Bible is God's revelation to his people, the essential qualification for a full understanding of this book is to know the revealing God, to have faith in God. To know him, we must have a relationship with him. And when you start to piece all this together, you come with this circle and you can see it in the the arrows here. If you want to understand the Bible, you've got to know God. You've got to be a person of faith. It's what Paul's telling the Corinthians, and that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. If you want to make sense of spiritual things, Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. If you want to understand the scriptures, understand the gospel, you've got to have faith. You've got to know God. Well, how do you know God? You read the Bible. How do you understand the Bible? Well, you have to approach it with faith. You've got to know God. Well, how do you know God? Well, you read the Bible. And you say, okay, I, I see the circle. Where do I get in? And all I'm saying to you is you just get in. You just get in. You believe that there's a God. You believe that he's spoken. You have faith. You start reading the Bible. You learn more about him, and it's just sort of a circle that goes round and round. You can think about this same circle, this same cycle, when you think about the whole of the Bible and the parts of the Bible. It's the same idea. How do you make sense of the individual little bitty parts of the Bible. Someone asked me a Bible question today about a really small piece of the Bible. They said, I'm totally confused by this little piece. And I said, Well, I think one of the ways you make sense of it is you interpret in, in light of all the rest of the Bible. Well, how do you understand the whole big picture of the Bible? Well, you've got to have some sense of all the little bitty pieces. And you sort of get in that same cycle, right? If you want to understand the big picture, you got to understand all the little pieces. But if you really want to understand all the little pieces, you got to have some sense of the big picture. And that sort of goes around and around and around. And when it comes to the parts and the whole, as you go around that cycle, your understanding of the Bible grows and it gets much, much stronger. There's sort of a synergy that takes over. And the same thing is true when it comes to faith and knowing God. We come to the Scriptures, we want to learn the truth about God. But we've got to approach with faith. We've got to know him. We've got to be spiritual people, not natural people, to make sense of spiritual things. So I know that feels like a chicken and the egg sort of thing, and you just sort of say, I don't know what's going on. But you've got to approach the Scriptures as a person of faith if you're going to understand this book. Secondly, a qualified interpreter is committed to obedience. If you really want to understand the scriptures, you've got to be committed to obey. So if you want to understand what the Bible means by repentance, you have to be prepared to repent when you need to repent. And if you want to understand what the Bible says about Christ-likeness, you need to be prepared to put off some things and to put on some things so that you can pursue Christ's likeness. James talks about this in James chapter 1. Verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's a great thing to go to Bible studies. I am so glad you're here tonight. On Sunday morning when we have Sunday school classes, I'm so glad you're here. But if you're only coming for intellectual learning and stimulation, you're missing the whole point. That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to make, like, Bible trivia nerds who can win the Jeopardy category when it comes up on, you know, Old Testament or whatever. That's not the the goal. And James says it. Don't be a hearer only and deceive yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts... He will be blessed in his doing. There's a quote from Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. They say true interpretation of the Bible can never be merely an exercise in ancient history. We cannot genuinely understand what a text meant without it affecting our lives. We're not just reading because it's interesting, we're not just reading to learn. We're reading for life transformation and we're reading that we might grow more and more like Christ. So you've got to be committed to obedience. Thirdly, a qualified interpreter is part of the church. The church. And if you like to, if you're making notes and you, you want to, you can put out beside church, local, local church and universal. Universal church. I'm talking about both of those. If you want to be a true interpreter of the Bible, you've got to be part of a local church and you've got to be part of the universal church. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says there's many members in one body and he's talking about the different roles that we play and that we're dependent on each other and that we need each other. Paul talks about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in about verse 11. He says, He, God, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain, we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's what we're seeking. What does the Christian faith boil down to? What does the Bible actually say about God and salvation? and our relationship with him. We want to pursue this unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood or mature personhood. We don't want to be immature spiritual people. We want to be mature people to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. so that it builds itself up in love. I mean, we could wade through that and really break it down, but this is what Paul's saying. If you want to grow up and be a mature Christian and you want to understand the Scriptures and be grounded in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, you've got to be part of a local church. You can't just read Paul's letters. That's not enough. You've got to be part of the church. God gave shepherds and apostles and prophets and teachers all the gifts listed in Corinthians, that the body would build itself up. It's not just an intellectual thing that we're pursuing. It's life changing and you need the body of Christ for that to take place. If Paul lived in 2021, he might add a little footnote in Ephesians 4 that says, you can't reach the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and mature manhood and the stature of the fullness of Christ watching YouTube videos by your favorite preacher at home. Watch YouTube videos by your favorite preacher at home. That's great. But that's not the end game of just learning. It's growing in likeness and it's being unified with your church family. That's sort of what we're seeking here as we're approaching the Scriptures. You've got to be part of the church. And let's just add this. There's been a lot of church that came before us. A lot. There's been a lot of people who have read this book and wrestled with this book and thought about this book for 2,000 years. The church has been wrestling with it. We haven't always got it right. Sometimes we've gone off out into left field. But this book, when the church is tethered to this book, there's course correction built in. And if you come up with something, some theological idea, some doctrinal concept that no one has ever found before in this book in 2,000 years, just forget it. It's wrong not right, just forget it. Don't be a heretic. Just say, nah, I'm, nah, 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 slow down, right? Trying to interpret this book, it's got to be done in the context of a local church. Klein Blomberg Hubbard. We are not the first ones to puzzle over the meaning of the Bible. We require the enrichment, endeavors, and assistance of our fellow believers to check our perceptions and affirm their validity. Likewise, our conclusions, if they're correct, have importance for others, meaning as you're learning and growing in knowledge of the Scriptures, it's not just for you, it's for other people in your church, and if you're not here investing in other people in your church, then you're just hoarding all that stuff in your own mind, in your own heart, which isn't the point anyways. It's got to be done in the context of a local church. A qualified interpreter, number one, two, three, four, is equipped with sound methods. Sound methods. Look what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If there's a right way to handle the word of truth, by definition there's got to be wrong ways to handle the word of truth. You don't want to handle it wrongly. And if there's a way to handle the word of truth that results in you being ashamed, well, then there's a way to handle the word of truth that results in you not being ashamed, and that's how you want to handle the word of truth. And if there's a way to be an approved worker handling the word of truth, then there's, by definition, a way to be an unapproved worker mishandling the word of truth. We want to approach the scriptures the right way. We want to interpret the Bible with sound methods. One last thought, and this is a big one. This is really, really, really big. A qualified interpreter is aware of his or her presuppositions. Presuppositions. A presupposition is something that you presuppose before you even get to the Bible and open it up and start reading. Something that's just baked into your mind and your thinking and your heart. You just sort of assume it de facto, for example, that there is a God. You approach the Bible and you say, I believe that there is a God. That's a presupposition you approach the Bible with. I believe that there is a God and that he's good. I approach the Bible believing that there is a good God who has spoken to us in this book. All of those things are presuppositions. And sometimes you'll hear people talk about, usually it's academics that say, we just want to put all of our presuppositions aside and we just want to approach the text and just take it at face value without anything sort of pre-baked in to our interpretation. It's not possible. Everyone who approaches any text approaches that text with certain presuppositions, and those presuppositions color and influence the way you make sense of what it is that you're reading. I'll give you a sports analogy. We like to watch sports in my house, and by we, I mean I like to watch sports in our house. Now, I have a son. He's not old enough to be interested in any sport on TV except the rodeos that he records, and he just watches them over and over and over, but if I'm watching a basketball game or a football game, and Clayton comes in the living room. He has started asking this question. It took me a couple of times to have any idea what he's saying. The question is, Dad, do we have a we in this game? I kept thinking Nintendo Wii. Like, are you talking about video games? I don't understand what you're saying. Dad, do we have a we in this game? And what he's saying is, are we rooting for someone in this game? Like, is it a Wii? That's us. Like, is there a bad guy in this game? I need to know if there's a bad guy. Is there a good guy? Somebody that we're on their side. he, He understands the way I make sense of this thing on TV changes. It's influenced if we have a we in the game. And so I say to him Dallas Cowboys are playing. That's a we. Kansas Jayhawks are playing. That's a we. We are pulling for these people. Everyone else is evil. Bad, 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 bad. So we're going to pull for these teams no matter what. Sometimes when we're watching the game, he says, Dad, do we have a we? And I think, eh, not really. But I really don't like those guys. So we're going to have a we just because we don't want to be them. We're going to be we with these guys because we don't want to be them. Sometimes, like the other night, there was a basketball game on, national championship game, Baylor and Gonzaga. Clayton says, Dad, do we have a we? And I said, well, uh, kind of like the Gonzaga coach. He seems like a nice guy. And I kind of like for him to win. But Kansas is in the Big 12. So maybe I'll pull for Baylor. But I don't know. I picked Gonzaga in my bracket, so I'd like to win the bracket challenge and be able to brag about that for the next year. I don't ever win that. But Gonzaga's Catholic and Baylor is at least Baptist in name, and so I don't know. And so you just end up saying, Listen, I just we just want it to be a good game. We just want to see a good game. We just want to be entertained. That's a presupposition. So I don't care who wins. I just want it to be Entertaining, that colors, that impacts the way that you watch a game. Look, this idea of who you're rooting for, who we're pulling for, who you're rooting against, you just don't care. All of this explains why we watch the same games and feel so differently about it. Remember when I put all those books up on the screen and I said, there's all these people, they can't agree about anything. They just talk about these things and they argue to no end. It's because they're approaching these issues many, many times, if not most of the time, if not all the time. They're approaching these issues with different presuppositions. They're starting with certain ideas about God or the Bible or systems of theology baked into their thinking so that when they read the exact same text, one guy says, go Gonzaga, and one guy says, go Baylor. Right? Same playing field, same text. They come away with different views. Many times it's because they have different presuppositions. So here's what I'm saying to you. You can't eliminate your presuppositions when you approach the Scriptures. Everyone has them. What you need to do, what I need to do, is make sure that we approach the Bible with the right presuppositions. And that circles back to that very first thing that we talked about. If you want to be a, a qualified interpreter of the Scripture, you've got to have faith. You've got to believe that God exists. You've got to be willing to submit your life in obedience to what this book says, to change your thinking. When this book confronts you about something that your grandma taught you, your grandma might be wrong. She might be right, and I need to change. I don't know. But you've got to be willing to approach it in that way. So these, this idea of presuppositions is important. Now, that's all the stuff we need to kind of worry about. We also have to be dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives if we're going to interpret this book rightly. And so let me throw a few ideas your way. This is Robert Stein. He says, throughout the entire process of interpreting the Bible, the Holy Spirit is intimately involved. In his book, he talks about the Holy Spirit's involved in the inspiration, breathing these words out, carrying these men along. uh, Peter describes it as they wrote these words. The Holy Spirit, he's involved from a historical process, has been involved in preserving these texts. It's a remarkable thing that we're reading a book that was written so many thousands of years ago. We have none of the original autographs or manuscripts that were written. We have copies of copies, but we have, we talked about this when we looked at the canon, thousands and thousands of manuscripts, and we look at them, and we compare them, and we understand, we know what the original text says. So the Holy Spirit's been involved in that process. The the Holy Spirit's been involved in guiding the church to to recognize, not to make the canon of Scripture, but to recognize the books that the Holy Spirit inspired, and the Holy Spirit has a few more things uh, that are important in terms of His role in our lives, so let me mention these. The Holy Spirit must regenerate our hearts if we're going to understand the text. If you're going to understand the text of Scripture, you have to have a heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And this is what we read earlier out of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Paul talks about this veil that was over these old covenant believers. They just didn't see and they didn't get things many times. And he talks about the Spirit is the one who can lift this veil and provide freedom to God's people. He says this is a, uh, verse 18 at the end, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This removal of the veil is not something your pastor can do. It's not something your Sunday school teacher can do. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And he says in chapter 4, he says, look, here's our ministry. We don't try to manipulate you. We don't try to sugarcoat you. We don't try to tell you what you want to hear and butter you up. We just tell you the plain truth of the gospel. Why? It wasn't because he thought those people could get it on their own. He said, in fact, the enemy has blinded your eyes so that you don't see the truth of the gospel. But it's that he believed that the Holy Spirit, the Lord, could open eyes, open hearts, change minds, give people ears to hear the truth, and he describes it in terms of what we read in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Just like God in the beginning said, let there be light, and light came bursting into existence, God now, through the work of his Holy Spirit, can give light. He can give eyes to see the truth through this regenerating, life-giving work of his Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's got to regenerate our hearts if we're going to understand the text Secondly, the Holy Spirit has to illumine our minds if we're going to truly and fully understand the text. And you can go back and look at 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2 is a long discussion about the natural man and the spiritual man and what can be discerned and what can't be discerned. We need the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to shine light in our minds so that we can understand. Stein says this, Luther, Calvin, the other reformers, they reflected on how the Spirit was involved in the interpretation of Scripture. They spoke of the inward work of illumination and conviction of the Holy Spirit. This view is also expressed at times by saying that apart from the Spirit, we cannot fully or truly understand the Bible. Okay, listen. There are non-Christian people who spend their life studying this book. I know that seems strange to us as Christian people, but... There are non-Christian people, atheistic people, who spend their life studying this book as a piece of literature. They're perfectly capable of making sense of the grammar. Many of them are phenomenal Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars. They can parse verbs. They can diagram sentences. They can lay out arguments, all of that stuff. We're not saying that lost people are so dumb that they can't read this text. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is if you want to really get it, if you want to truly get it, you can't do it on your own. You're dependent on the Holy Spirit. You're dependent on the Spirit to give you a new heart and you're dependent on the Holy Spirit to illumine these truths. Last, the role of the Spirit interpretation is not an excuse for laziness. Stein said it so good, I just gave you the quote. What I mean is, None of us get to say, well, I don't study the Bible much. I'm just spirit taught. No, you're lazy. Right? What did Paul tell Timothy? Timothy, don't worry about it, young preacher. Just rely on the Holy Spirit. He'll tell you exactly what. He said, Timothy, be an approved workman. Don't be ashamed of the way that you handle the word of truth. Handle the word of truth rightly. Timothy, you're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to labor at this. So the work of the Spirit in our lives is no excuse for laziness. So what do we do? Just some practical thoughts here at the end, and I'm going to give you these quick. Uh, I pulled all of these out of a book called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. It's by a guy named Rob Plummer. Uh, He's a professor of Greek at Southern Seminary. Uh, If you like studying about this kind of stuff, this is a book you might check out. There's parts of this book that are a little bit on the technical side, but there's a lot of stuff in the book that's really uh, helpful, and this is some of it. How do we improve as interpreters? Okay, number one, read the Bible. It's a great Sunday school answer. The goal here is immersion, by the way. All right? The best way, I think we all understand this, the best way to learn a new language is not to download an app on your phone and spend five minutes a day piddling around with vocabulary and think, if I do this for a couple of weeks, I'm going to be able to speak Spanish or Chinese or German or whatever. If you really want to learn another language, go to a place where people speak it and just figure it out. Find a teacher and just stay there and immerse yourself in it, and you'll get it. If you want to get the Bible, immerse yourself in it. Devotions, one verse a day, that's better than no verses a day, but that's not what we're talking about. You've got to be able to see the whole big picture, and if you want to be able to understand this book, you just need to read it. I don't think there's anything in the world that says a Christian must read the Bible all the way through in a year. There's no, I mean, there's no, I can't say that to you. I can tell you that I do it and have done it for many, many years now as just a way to say, I've got to immerse myself in this book. I've got to be reading it. I've got to be in it. I've got to be swimming in it. I've got to be thinking in it. I've got to be living in these things. So number one, read the Bible. Number two, read and listen to faithful preaching and teaching. And maybe I should have had you fill in the blank on faithful rather than preaching, but you get the idea. There are a lot of popular preachers, um, Apple Podcast, whatever podcast you listen to, they'll tell you who gets the most downloads and who's the most popular. That's probably not the best place to start. Like find somebody who faithfully talks about the scriptures. Not somebody who's the funniest, not somebody who's the most entertaining, but someone who's just faithfully talking about the scriptures. There is so many good preachers out there available that you can listen to during the week while you're driving, while you're exercising, while you're mowing the lawn, while you're doing laundry, while you're doing dishes, whatever. There's people that you can listen to, people like Alistair Begg, people like John MacArthur. Listen to these guys, how they're teaching, how they're preaching. It helps you understand the Bible. Thirdly, understand the relationship between faith and understanding. We talked about that earlier. You're going to be a qualified interpreter. You've got to be a person of faith. I shared this quote with my Sunday school class a few weeks ago from Anselm. He says, I do not seek to understand in order to believe. I believe in order to understand. How many people say, well, I'll believe these things about God when I can make sense of all of them and put it all together in my brain? Well, good luck with that. That's the wrong way. You've got it entirely backwards. You've got to come with a heart willing to believe, a heart that has faith if you want to understand. Fourthly, don't just affirm sound interpretive principles, but apply them. This is going back to that idea of obedience we talked about earlier. The goal is not just to be able to figure out Bible mysteries or decode things you've never been able to make sense of, but it's to have a life that's actually changed. Fifth, welcome and receive feedback graciously. If you can read the Bible every day for five years and you don't change your mind about anything, anything, you're not challenged by anything, your presuppositions are getting in the way of what the Bible is actually saying. None of us have it all figured out perfectly. I mean, the books about all these guys arguing and debating proves that. Do any of us think that we're the one person that has all 32 of those issues figured out exactly perfectly right? No. Absolutely not. So receive feedback do it graciously. Sixth, acquire and employ Bible study tools. If you speak English at all, you have more resources for Bible study available to you than any people who have ever lived on this planet ever, not by a little bit, but by a long shot, by a long shot. I like this quote from Erasmus. I don't agree with Erasmus about a lot, but he said, when I get a little money, I buy books, and if any's left, I buy food and clothes. So maybe you could get some tools. Get your clothes, get your food, and then if you have some left over, maybe you get some, some tools to help you understand the Bible. One last thought, pass on what you're learning. I like the way he phrased that because if he had said teach, a lot of you would have said, no, nah, I'm not a teacher. So you don't have to teach. We don't have to put you in charge of a Sunday school class or give you a Wednesday night. But you know as well as I do that when you teach something, you study it entirely different. You learn it in greater detail. You think through it in a different way. And when you pass it on to somebody else, it helps you learn it even better. Our Sunday school teachers tell me that all the time. How much I'm learning because I'm teaching. And I've got to dig in and I've got to be ready to share this with other people. So if you want to be a good interpreter of the Bible, maybe find a way to pass on what you're learning. So we're going to end with prayer and pray that God would make us qualified interpreters and pray for the work of the Spirit in our lives. So let's pray.